0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events.
1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Hanna, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. These lyrics from Kenny Rogers, the gambler, are the exact opposite of what we espouse here on Earn and Invest. We are investors, not speculators, not gamblers. We're looking for long-term returns, not short-term wins. The gentleman I'm going to interview today eschewed Wall Street and became a professional blackjack player. He then turned mental gymnastics into physical by transitioning to working five simultaneous gig jobs to support his pursuit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He now brings all this experience to the role of financial coaching. The professional blackjack player is now a strategic planner and builder of good habits. So what did he learn along the way? What can the gambler teach us about smart money management? Chris Hanna is an entrepreneur and financial coach. He helps clients organize, manage, and invest their money to gain peace of mind, spend more time doing what they love, and build wealth with confidence Chris, welcome to Earn and Invest. Tell us how in the
1: world you became a professional blackjack player. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Well, senior year of college, I had a a choice to make. Everyone is figuring or thinking about what they want to do after school. And I was either going to take a job on Wall Street or play blackjack. And uh, I, I probably could have done both, but I saw it as... I'm either going to go in and be an employee or I'm I'm going to pursue entrepreneurship. And I had just desperately wanted my independence from a young age. So, I mean, I, I didn't really care for school. I made the best of it. Regular school, college, even, I, you know, I made the best of it. But when the time came and I had the opportunity to do something different, I took it. Uh, and I also had in mind, you know, if I'm going to take some sort of risk like this, I might as well do it when I'm younger. I don't have a family to support. You know, I'm I'm straight out of college. There's no better time. Just prior to the second semester of senior year, I had reached out to my roommate, who was also a numbers guy. And I I said, hey, have you ever thought about counting cards? We had both. I, I was aware he had seen that movie 21. I had seen it back in middle school or high school. Much younger at the time, not able to gamble at that time. But when I saw that movie, it was... Enough to just tell me that, yes, it's Hollywood, yes, it's you know romanticized, but there was some math and statistics behind what they were doing. And so now, at I think twenty two years old, able to gamble, I said to him, I, I think we can really make some money doing this. And so from the the day that we got back from that winter break, uh, senior year of college, we started practicing. We got a whole bunch of books. We learned how to count and practice all these different skills that you need to be a professional blackjack player. Within days after, I mean, even before we graduated, we started, we went to a local casino. And then certainly after we graduated, uh, it was just, we hit the ground running. I want to get into the specifics of card counting.
0: But before we do, let's talk about that dichotomy a little bit of Wall Street versus professional blackjack player. At first, they sound very different. Yet as you're talking about the mathematics, I start to feel like there's some similarity there.
1: Yeah, there is. I mean, the big thing for me was that I think like most finance majors, the certainly early on in college, the goal is to land a, a role at an investment bank. And the as I started to get more experience and, and see what that really meant and what that entailed, hearing about these two-year rotational programs that happen after you graduate, it it just sounded miserable, and I had uh, an experience interning at a hedge fund. My going into my junior year of college, and I sort of saw the light of hedge funds and investment firms versus just you know six a.m. to midnight in an investment bank for two years, reporting to a managing director. And so I saw the light of uh, of hedge funds and, and thought, okay, I'm definitely don't want to do that investment banking route. An investment firm seems more like up my alley. But then I saw this light of entrepreneurship through Blackjack potentially. And yes, they they have similar, you think about things similarly. You've got to run the numbers. You have to think about things analytically. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, it, it came down to employee versus entrepreneur, which one did I want to pursue? So you had a safe path.
0: It sounds like you had a traditional finance degree. There was a safe path to take. Tell me what
1: how your parents reacted to this. They were not happy. They were not happy at all. <laughs> actually, I, I wanted to include them in the in the conversation before I actually made my decision. I, I remember calling them up, and they were almost surprised that I was even considering doing that. Like this, she, they were in their heads. There's no there's no consideration to be made. Like this is like you're saying it's it's the secure path. It's the my my father's an immigrant from Lebanon, and like other sons and daughters of immigrants know, like they believe in the college route to a secure job afterwards. And so, yeah, they were not happy, but like I said, I just, you know, it, I, I, I stuck to my guns. I felt like this, it feels right. And so I've, I've oftentimes led by that intuition and that gut feeling. And um, yeah, they, they eventually came around to it. You know, I mean, they were support. They've always been supportive of me. So it, it didn't go well at first, but in time that, yeah they came around to it. I'm interested in the fact
0: that when you talk about professional blackjack playing, you use the term entrepreneurship almost in a sense. I personally, before this conversation was thinking that was more like being a professional athlete as opposed to be an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, it could be. In my head, I just thought, how can I when I thought about entrepreneurship, and even now, it's, it's how can you make money on your own? Whether you are creating a job for yourself or outright starting a business that you can scale, one way or another, if you're doing it on your own, uh, that's how I'm thinking about entrepreneurship. And yeah, it could be through professional blackjack. It could be through you know, being a professional athlete, but, and not by yourself, right? That's, it's, it doesn't mean that you don't have help along the way, but are you your own boss, really? So, the thing they say about
0: casinos is that the house always wins. Tell us about card counting. I mean,
1: were you successful and how did it play out as a way to support yourself? Every game in the casino has a house advantage. It's the average amount that a casino wins per dollar that is wagered. So, what that means is, you know, take a game like roulette, on average, you lose a little over 5% of everything that you wager. So, if you're playing $100 per spin, over time, over the long run, you're going to lose about five dollars, you know, per per spin. And blackjack, if you play perfect basic strategy, basic strategy is is just it, it, there's one correct play for every possible hand. And if you play perfect basic strategy, and the rules are advantageous, some casinos nowadays there's just some terrible rules, like the, the payouts are different. They have uh, rules that you know, aren't great. But when they are, when when it's advantageous, if you play perfect basic strategy, the house advantage is just half a percent. So you're talking about 10 times less more better than roulette. When you count cards, you're not doing anything differently than just flipping that edge. So although that half a percent advantage that the casino has is sort of standard, it actually fluctuates as the amount of high and low cards fluctuate throughout gameplay. So If, as long as you are betting a lot when the advantage is higher and betting lower when the advantage is lower, you are flipping that edge. And yes, we, we won money over the long run. We had to get a lot of hands in to to see that there's a lot of fluctuation. And so, to your question about how that, you know, how I was, we were able to use that to support ourselves. it It was tough at times because we, we ran some numbers, but not all the numbers. And we, on our, it's easy to see our, expected value and standard deviation in front of us on a computer screen but then when you're at the casino sometimes winning hundreds and thousands of dollars sometimes losing hundreds and thousands of dollars it's uh, it could it was tough to stomach that at times and when we relied on that as a source of income that's when it really started to hurt a few months after we graduated college this is my my blackjack partner and I my college roommate we Drove out to Vegas from Washington, D.C. is is where we went to school. We drove out to Vegas, stayed there for about a month, just playing every single day for logged hundreds of hours playing out there. By the time we came back, I mean, we were on it. We felt good. We hit different casinos on our way back along the East Coast. And we actually had a week over a 24-hour span of gameplay where we made about 10 grand, which for us was quite a lot. And it gave us the confidence to sign an apartment lease. A 12 month lease, it was uh, nearly a couple thousand dollars per month. But we said, if we can make 10 grand in a week, even if we make a fraction of that in a month, you know, we should be able to support ourselves. Unfortunately, like I said, we didn't run all the numbers and uh, we just did not have a big enough bankroll to support that with the swings within a matter of weeks after we signed that apartment lease both of our cars broke down we hit a couple <laughs> we we had, hit a couple major downswings right before we had to pay rent which cut into our bankroll even more so it was just uh it it was great until it wasn't and then It we eventually just had to find more reliable and sustainable sources of income, even like the stock market, it it fluctuates, it trends upwards, and that's what was happening. But you've got to have a size enough, invest a a big enough investment in order for it to actually, in in order for you to draw from it. I was about to say, as you
0: were describing this, I couldn't help but think about how similar that sounds like to someone who's a day trader, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the ups and downs, and even if you know the math. Even if you're precise enough and have the statistical methods, you still need a certain amount of bankroll to cover the swings um, because it's the opposite of stable, right? It's changing moment to moment. Did you ever get kicked out of any casinos?
1: Not kicked out, but caught. So in Atlantic City, they're not actually allowed to kick you out. There was some court case back in the early 2000s that a card counter was kicked out, took it to court, and won. And so at least Atlantic City casinos, not allowed to kick you out, but they can do a lot of things that make it just, it doesn't make any sense to play. So they'll flat bet you, meaning you can't actually fluctuate your bet. Uh, They will shuffle up, I mean, you know, midway through the deck. And so it's, again, so, so they can make it really, not advantageous. And so that happened uh, uh unfortunately a couple of times in Atlantic city and then in Vegas, they can kick you out, but, uh, they can also just ask you not to play blackjack, which is what happened at a couple casinos. So you get that tap on your shoulder, sir, uh, you know, your blackjack skills are too good for us. We, we, we have to ask you not to play here anymore. Very very kind of cordial actually i think they just don't want to make a big scene no one in the table. they don't want other people knowing that as soon as you start winning you're going you're going to get kicked out so not kicked out of casinos but asked not to play yeah so you never were taken to a back room and roughed up and then thrown out the back door yeah thank god no i wasn't uh, that yeah that was something that we we had to look up you know it's something that we had to actually take a a semi serious look at before we got into it because that wasn't something we were going to be willing to risk. I'm a risk taker but that's not something I was interested in. And yeah, that that's that stopped I don't know 20 30 40 years ago, probably 40 years ago. So clearly you started to see that the life of
0: a blackjack player was not nearly as glamorous or sustaining as you thought it would be. So then of course you went to Wall Street because that was the right thing to do and and move on with your life,
1: right? No, not quite. No. So there was this, I had heard this phrase over and over. A lot of us here, do what you love and the money will follow. So that had been in the back of my head. It. I just was thinking, if I pursue these intuitions and this sort of love for different things, then I will eventually make the money that I want and have the freedom that I want. And so at the time, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was a real passion of mine. And so not only did I enjoy it, but in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, do what you love and the money will follow, which is anyway. (laughs) Uh, No, no, no. Go into
0: that for a second. Cause I want to get into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. but I, once you said that I also caught my breath a little bit too, because it's the labor of love myth. Right. And Mm. I definitely think it's a myth, but I'm wondering what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 so I pursued jujitsu for a period of time with that in the back of my head. Eventually, I mean, just a couple of years after I graduated with a degree in finance and economics, I had internships at a hedge fund, training on Wall Street. I was studying eventually past the first level of the CFA, all of these sort of financial accolades. Two years after I graduated with that degree, I was sleeping in my car in a Walmart parking lot, trying to just doing everything I could to make it work, to pay off debt that I had accumulated from uh raising money to play blackjack from friends and family and i mean it just th- there was a there was a, a line that i read at one point from i think it was from po- poverty to power i forget who wrote that where he says if you want to become wealthy you have to pursue wealth which to me i think i had just Maybe glazed over that, but eventually it it made me realize, like, yeah, if you want to do anything, you have to pursue that thing. Like stop treating money as a byproduct of something that's going to come because you're pursuing what you love. If you want to, I don't know, become a teacher, well, you need to learn about teaching and learn how to become a teacher. Or If you want to become a chef, learn about chef, pursue being a cook. And if you want to become wealthy, learn about and pursue wealth. So yeah, that's that's sort of the way that I think about it now. You were interested in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You're like
0: do what I love, the money's going to come. Did you end up getting like five different
1: gig jobs to support practicing? Yeah. Yeah. So after Blackjack, after we realized that it just wasn't going to be the sustainable and consistent source of income that we needed, I was also wanting to train four or five times a week, sometimes more, sometimes twice a day. And whatever work that I wanted, I wanted to find work that enabled me to just have that flexibility and also just still pursue, again, like that freedom and entrepreneurship. So I suppose I wouldn't have been able to train in the afternoons if I took a part-time job but or or a full-time job, but I just felt like I would have been completely drained doing something I didn't enjoy. It wouldn't have allowed me to train successfully in the evenings. So I drove for Lyft and Uber. I found a job babysitting uh, for a family Monday through Thursday. I then was tutoring a high school student also Monday through Thursday and I was teaching after school financial literacy classes at different elementary middle and high schools and a lot of that happened Monday through Thursday the Lyft and Uber was mostly Friday Saturday Sunday and I also was working a bunch of odd jobs on an app through an app called TaskRabbit which if you're in any sort of major city you may have heard of it it just allows people to hire for any sort of odd job and for contractors to pick it up so I mean I did I did literally whatever I could, and especially TaskRabbit was fun. You could just pick up tasks as they came. So I waited in line for people that there was certain restaurants in Washington, D.C. You had to sort of wait in line, get your reservation hours in advance. I waited in line, deep, clean apartments. Uh, One was infested with fruit flies, had a 24-hour eviction notice. I kind of swooped in. I felt like a hero there. (laughs) And um, I took about a six or eight-hour job for like 75 bucks an hour. The guy was across the country and and... Uh, two other sort of taskers had taken that job, showed up to the apartment and left because they they weren't going to do it. So, I mean, whatever I could do, I, I, I did, I guess.
0: Was it worth it? I mean, you talk about if you're interested in wealth, you have to pursue wealth. You clearly weren't doing that at this part of your life. Looking back, were you a little naive?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I remember a conversation I had with my jujitsu coach, elite grappler. He's a UFC fighter. I once I was realizing that it just I couldn't keep living the way that I was living, and I was on a friend's couch for six months, a training a training partner's couch. It just all of that had led me to say, "This is just this is just not working," you know. And I told him that I wanted to take maybe a three or six month break. And sort of figure out how to make things more sustainable. I, I knew people were making money from their laptops. I was vaguely aware that you know that was possible, but I just didn't really get it. And he said to me, you know, if you if you want to become elites, if you really want to take this to the highest level, you've got to be willing to sleep in a cardboard box. And I I got that. I like I understood that intuitively, but I think what was happening was I walked out of there, I realized. I am willing to sleep out of a cardboard box for freedom and my independence more than I am for jujitsu and more than I am for wealth, even though wealth would have brought me some degree of freedom. So yeah, I think that a lot of it just was me figuring out what I was really going after. And so even though I was in my head thinking, yeah, I want to pursue wealth and, and learn how to make money and all, the... It took a while for me to figure out, yes, that's important, but what I really want is that freedom. And that's why I think I sacrificed a potentially much higher paying job to go on this, you know, much riskier path.
0: We're talking with Chris Hanna, a former professional blackjack player, jujitsu practitioner. And now, financial coach, we're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Now you can invest in Consumer Physics who has developed the first portable lab grade device that can analyze material at a molecular level helping farmers boost production, improve efficiency and minimize waste. Consumer Physics has grown revenue 100% year over year and is used by over 50 global enterprise customers. Invest today at our crowd. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested in over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash eai. Again, that's rcrowd.com slash eai. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking with Chris Hanna. He is an entrepreneur and financial coach. He helps clients organize and manage and invest their money to gain peace of mind, spend more time doing what they love, and build wealth with confidence. So Chris, we've been talking about your history, professional blackjack player, then Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. However, did you come to financial coaching?
1: so with the financial literacy organization that I was teaching for, I was working maybe a few hours a week for this guy. It was was really a startup. Uh, I eventually, after deciding that I wanted some more stability, I took a role leading the operations of what he was doing through the DC, Maryland and Virginia region. And it was a contract job still. I was able to work remote, so I still had some flexibility, but I finally had a a consistent paycheck coming in, and after about a year of that, I realized that I didn't really have any idea where my money had gone, and that was frustrating. Uh, I had also recently read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and so in the back of my head, I'm thinking I need to put as much money as I can into assets. And so the fact that I also wasn't aware of how much money I've put into assets is also frustrating. So I went on this this journey. I, I think as a lot of people that get into personal finance do, I started reading uh, all the top books. So. Uh, the Total Money Makeover, uh, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, The Richest Man in Babylon, a lot of these books. And I still felt unfulfilled when it came to practically deciding what to do with your money and then sort of ensuring that you stick to those decisions. Those are a couple of principles that I've identified now that I didn't back then, but not a lot of those specifically like rich dad, poor dad and the total money makeover, they do an amazing job, in my opinion, of addressing some of the higher level mindsets and and even some of the mid-level action items like the baby steps. But yeah, just when it came down to it, I felt like, like I said before, I had all of this background in finance. I felt like I should have a clear understanding of what I should be doing with my money and how to ensure that I stick to those decisions and track it and organize it. In an efficient way that didn't ha- require tracking all of my tracking and categorizing all my expenses, which led me to sort of pursue and and figure out how to do that on my own.
0: Compare and contrast the training you get as a finance major in college or business school versus that self taught journey you went on reading about personal finance. A lot of people don't realize we're talking about kind of macroeconomics when you're in your finance class versus personal finance. It's a very different thing. Did you learn anything from your college degree that actually helped as a financial coach?
1: Well, you're you're spot on in it being very different. In fact, when I went to study abroad my junior year, I was trying to get credit for a personal finance class, and I had to struggle to get that approved. So the, the, the head of the the, the finance department was trying not to let me get credit for that thing. It was like too basic. I'm like, this is teaching you about personal finance and taxes and all this stuff. So not only was it not taught, I almost struggled to get it taught through my own pursuits. Yeah. Finance in college is very much corporate. It's teaching you how to land a job at a big bank or an investment firm or you know one of the big four accounting firms. And I don't know, I, I push paper. Like, I mean, that's very biased for me because I'm just not a fan of that side of it. But uh, yeah. I mean, it was just far too... It just wasn't applicable to the nuances of actually being good with your money. I mean, when you receive a paycheck or when you make a sale, you. it doesn't matter if you know how to price an option. It matters, am I making a conscious decision about the best way to use this money? And do I have a plan for it? And am I sticking to it? And, and that is what you learn when you start pursuing this on your own. A moment ago, you were talking about habits. We're going to come back to that. But
0: first, I wanted to ask you on your website, it says you specialize in athletes, or at least work with a lot of athletes. How did that come about? And, and does that have something to do with kind of your history of professional blackjack playing as well as jujitsu?
1: Yeah, I've been an athlete my whole life, not a professional one, but I started playing soccer when I was 5, played competitively on competitive teams for, you know, growing up and then uh, once I I mean really the the professional athletes. So I was an athlete growing up and then I've just always been very just high achiever, I guess, and 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 I I knew that I wanted to work with other high achievers. So when I recognized that I my Business and money management skills were, I felt confident enough to take those and apply them to my own financial coaching business. I thought, what's the, I wanted to start niched down first before I expanded. And I thought, what's a group of people that is making some decent money, but doesn't know what to do with it? And my first thought was UFC fighters, because I had had this experience uh, training jujitsu, which is the grappling martial art, and that they train in mixed martial arts in the UFC. And my coach was a UFC fighter. And I was aware that they were, only the UFC fighters only fight and earn money about two or three times a year. So they're in desperate need of help managing their money. And that's the, I I already understood their language. So I reached out to them on, I reached out to a whole bunch on Instagram, a handful became clients and that's how I got started. So let's talk about financial coaching. When you
0: wrote me, you said your core message is you can manage your money with simple habits and live your dream. Let's talk about some of those habits. What are the core habits that that really allow you to have this freedom that you were searching for so much
1: when you started your career? Yeah, the the biggest one is simply deciding what to do with your money. Now, that might be called or it might look like a budget, but the way that I think about it, it's when you receive money, if you just simply decide, and and that's 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 a loaded sort of task. So we can break that down into more actionable habits, but because you have to consider, well, you have to ask, you have to know sort of what things to consider when you're deciding what to do with it. But if you decide what to do with your money when you receive it, that is a core habit that is going to get you to, to build wealth and, and to really just to use your money as effectively as you possibly can to live the life that you want to live and build wealth for the future. So certainly deciding what to do with your money paying attention to it and just keeping track of it at least on a monthly basis which means you have an up to date pieces of paper or a spreadsheet that says these are my assets my liabilities my income my expenses and my goals and that's the core foundation or your that's your that's your core financial foundation so if you can keep those up to date at least every month you can know where you're starting from uh, and also where you're going if you have your goals written down there and then you can be strategic you can use those those numbers and those goals to figure out what is the best thing to do with my money when I receive it.
0: You talked about budgeting there. On the other hand, I've also heard you discuss the fact that you don't have to necessarily keep an item by item budget. Tell us the difference
1: between budgeting and money management because a lot of people actually think they're the same thing. Yeah, and I did for a while too until I just realized and sort of decided myself that I was not going to track and categorize my expenses for the rest of my life. It's just completely unsustainable. I mean, I think that it could work for some people and if if I know it works for some people and they're okay with that, but I just felt like there had to be a simpler way. It just we spend our money on so many different things that it, it's so tedious to try and even if you're using an app, there's, there's some great apps, but even if you're using an app, you still have to go in and categorize things. And it's reactive because you're, quote, managing your money after the fact, after you've already spent it. But a budget is, you can look up a budget template on Google and that's your basic budget. Budgets are great for businesses and for when you need to decide what to do with one particular set amount of money in some point in the future. I think a budget is great for that. But you most people earn money let's just say bi-weekly, or if you're an entrepreneur, perhaps even more often. And when I think about managing money, I think about on at least a bi-weekly basis, having money coming into one specific account, and then the decision-making process. Like I talk about this habit of deciding what to do with your money. You can start with a blank sheet of paper. You've got the money. Let's say you're an employee and you have your direct deposit comes in on Friday. It's for a couple thousand dollars. You start. Let's say it's $2,000 after tax. You start with that $2,000 uh, two thousand dollars at the top of the paper. Along the left-hand side is your list of accounts or your budget categories, and or your spending categories, or buckets, what what have you. And then you go down the list saying, "I want to put this much in this category, this one, this one, and this one." And it's it's essentially the cash envelope system, with but it's with uh, bank accounts that that I use instead. And if you're using bank accounts, the last thing that you want is ten different bank accounts. You also don't want ten different cash envelopes either. So Yeah, uh, when I think about managing money, it's it's much more proactive. You use the term
0: income account, and in fact, say that that's one of the most important bank accounts you can have.
1: Explain what that is exactly. Yeah, so I'll I'll preface this with the fact that uh, nowadays, and I'm, uh, Ally Bank is is a very popular online bank. I I got introduced to it from a friend who said, "Hey, you can go put your money in here, and you'll earn two percent on your savings." It that savings rate fluctuates, but that's how I got introduced to it anyway. It's a fully online bank, FDIC insured. And I think that some of the things that they're doing, and I don't have an affiliation with Ally Bank, but I think some of the things that they're doing um, are, I think they're trailblazing. I think that no minimum balance requirements, no maintenance fees, you know, no overdraft, like all of this stuff that they're doing, I think is very innovative uh, and, and a bit, it's about time anyway, the way I look at it. So Yeah, uh, an income account is, hey, if you can open as many accounts as you want, I started using an income account, which is just a checking account without a debit card. So it forces you to decide what to do with your money before you actually spend it. Ideally, to decide what to do with your money when you're sitting at home, you've got a bird's eye view of your financial situation, and you're thinking about what's the most strategic way to use this money. So, you have your direct deposit come straight into that. If you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, you can have uh, you can make any draws from your business, sending it directly to your personal income account, which is great for other reasons as well. but uh, ultimately, it forces you to decide what to do with your money before you actually spend it because you don't have a debit card you know hooked up with it. Now, talk about the difference between an income
0: account and a wealth account because that's something else you talk
1: about. Yeah, a wealth account is a savings account that is used specifically to create a better life for yourself. So that could mean uh, investing in your ability to generate income through books, courses, experts. It could mean putting money in there to start a business or a side hustle or to acquire assets. Maybe you want to put money in there to buy your first duplex. I like having a wealth account because it forces you to be creative with how am I going to. Create this better life for myself? And how can I be creative in the way that I use this money? So, for example, there, when I was first getting started with my financial coaching business, I hired a business coach that worked with uh, financial coaches, helped take them through the process. This is how you can structure your program. This is how you can price it. This is what a contract might look like. I paid for that out of my wealth account. I, I, it wasn't me saying, Am I going to pay several thousand dollars? Uh, you know, for this business coach, or am I going to pay several thousand dollars towards rent for the next couple of months? It was. I know I have this money sitting here to be used to either increase my income. Could be used for, like, I, I used it to buy a a purple pillow. Is a hundred bucks. It was really helping my neck, which I was having pain in at the time. I'm just looking at it as a, yeah, it's it's is a distinct way to use your money to create this better life. And it sounds like, in a sense, it's it's self investment. Yes, absolutely. It certainly can be. It can. You can also use it if it grows and grows. And I think that there's a time and a place to invest in retirement accounts. I think it's also valuable. uh, I actually think it's valuable to invest in both at the same time, both in your wealth account and in retirement accounts. But uh, as it grows, if you want to use your wealth account, I work with a client. She's putting money aside there for. to to put her first down payment down on on a piece of real estate. So yeah, you can certainly invest in yourself. You can also invest in assets. It sounds like people sometimes make
0: their money management real complex. You talk of simple systems. Are we making it overly complex when we're talking about how we manage our money?
1: I think that the default is to use a standard budget template that you find on Google and use 10 or 15 plus different different categories itemized through every possible expense you could possibly have. And then through that process, it just, like I said, in my opinion, it it becomes unsustainable for for a lifetime. Uh, So on that side of it, I think it's complex. I also think that when you go on Google and search how to manage my money, it comes with the sort of this is what you should do, but this is not quite how you do it and the systems that you're using to do it. So yeah, I think that there's a, there's of course a lot of information on a lot of different things. Anything that you want to, that you want to learn is going to have a ton of information out there on it. And I don't think that it's simple enough in most cases. Do we over
0: track? I mean, that's another thing where you're talking about kind of the ups and downs of budgeting.
1: Should we be tracking less and more looking at categories? Yeah, if that was the only way, and ultimately, right, when you categorize an expense, even if you're tracking it, that's what you're doing is you're putting it into a smaller category. Uh, Ultimately, though, if that was the only way to manage your money effectively, then by all means, it's better than not doing anything. But there is an easier way. You can just put money into very specific and simple categories. Like, for example, I use three primary spending accounts. I only have two debit cards with them uh, uh, to boot my recurring expenses account is for all my recurring and fixed expenses that doesn't have a debit card well i guess i technically have a debit card but i don't carry it around with me i have it there in case i need to type it in online for the electric bill or something like that but that that money comes out automatically and then you just have uh, you've got your needs and you've got your wants now you need to sort of create that initial budget itemize everything and and sort of figure out how much do i need for those categories on a biweekly or monthly basis, but then moving forward, as long as you are writing down how much you're putting into those accounts and only using those accounts for their intended purpose, you no longer need to track your expenses. You don't need to know that you spent your money 10 different times on food for the month. You just need to know in total, how much did I spend on food for the month? So you've been a financial coach. You're
0: obviously helping many people with their personal finances. What mistakes do you see a lot of people make at the front of this, when you first meet them,
1: almost no one has their financial foundation established and When I say financial foundation, I just mean assets, liabilities, income expenses, and goals. so if you're trying to use your money in the most effective way possible to live the life you want to live and build wealth for the future you've a lot of people have a vague idea of where they want to go, but they have virtually no understanding of where they stand at the moment so that's that's the first thing that I have new clients do is we establish their financial foundation together there's not too much to it i could even break down the categories that you need to write for each of those things it takes maybe 1 to 2 hours to get everything written down a little bit of research on on your part to look up exactly how much you're paying for your recurring expenses what the outstanding balance on a, a debt or a, you know or your car loan is and then from there you have a springboard to then be strategic with your decisions moving forward Up to this point, we've been talking about strategic plans,
0: money management, budget. We haven't talked much about the stock market. Tell us about some of the mistakes people make when getting invested in the stock market,
1: especially early on. Yeah, certainly buying and selling individual stocks based on your hunch or what the hottest stock is. It's what I did when I first got started, 18 years old, I opened my first brokerage account with TD Ameritrade and I think they gave me at the time it was $10 per trade to buy and to sell but they gave me I think 2 free months of unlimited you know commission free trading and I took that and ran with it I'm thinking this is how you make money I this you buy and sell stock and 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 that's what I did for those two months. Nowadays, virtually everything is commission-free. Robinhood really paved the way for that, but now competitive brokers are doing the same. And so it's no longer two months for everyone. It's a lifetime of commission-free trades where you're just almost allowed. You can just buy and sell stock when you want. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make getting into the stock market is thinking that they have to trade really actively. It's a hot term too, day trading. Even before you know what that is, you've heard of it. So, I think that's a big mistake when uh, certainly in the personal finance community, we're real big on just investing in a couple target date funds, tracking the S&P 500 and with some with some weighting in a, in a in a bond fund. There's a lot of talk recently about the stock market being overpriced.
0: Even discussion that maybe over the next 10 to 15 years equity returns will be lower any worries about staying kind of in that broad target fund index space
1: i suppose it depends how old you are and when you need to draw from it i'm i mean for anyone that's in their let's say 30s and 40s if you don't plan on if you don't plan on withdrawing from it for the next 20 plus years i don't really think it's a concern although i am vaguely aware that uh, something that i i read in from morgan housel in the psychology of money he talks about black swans being these Events that happen that are just completely unexpected. So, the fact that we have the stock market has had a pretty good track record for the last 50, 7,500 years, and we've had a, I think, the longest bull run in history from 2009 until the pandemic. Yeah, I think that it has, there's a potential for a black swan, or perhaps because I'm saying if there's potential for a black swan, then Maybe it's not what I'm thinking, because you, know, you can't predict <laughs> it. But uh, I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about it. I think that as long as the fact that the stock market is representative of, specifically the S and P 500, is representative of, you know, just all industries, the 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 biggest, most profitable companies. I mean, if you're diversified in there, I think you're going to be okay in the long run. And there's bigger worries to have if that doesn't do well. You know, get your your, your, your bomb shelter and your your canned food and all that, you know, as, as, as people say, if, this, if the S&P 500 tanks, there, there's bigger problems to worry about. We're talking with
0: Chris Hanna, former professional blackjack player, Brazilian jujitsu practitioner and financial coach. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is Earn and Invest. Hey, everybody, I just wanted to remind you that on episode 240, we featured my good friend Jillian Johnsrud. Her new book came out, Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World. It is now available for pre-order, and I highly suggest you take a look at it. This is one of the best references I've now seen for content creators to talk about what it feels like to be in social media. And how to deal with the haters, those who don't respond positively to the content you create. Anyone out there who's successful knows that the more successful you become, the more haters there are. These people tend to weigh on you, and their comments can hurt. How do we deal with it? How do we continue to grow? Check her out, JillianJohnsRude.com. Fire the Haters. Her new book is available for pre-order, and I hope you go ahead and purchase it and take a look. Let me reintroduce you. Chris Hanna is an entrepreneur and financial coach. He helps clients organize, manage, and invest their money to gain peace of mind, spend more time doing what they love, and build wealth and confidence. Chris, let's talk about COVID. Do you think it's changed your advice at all, or have you modified how you're dealing with your coaching clients?
1: Not. I don't think it's changed much. I think that had you had an emergency fund funded prior to COVID, which is a luxury for a lot of people to be able to do that, but had you had that set aside, you would not have been stressing like a lot of people were in uh, when when COVID hit. It perhaps has just made us all that much more aware that anything can happen if it's whether it's a pandemic or who knows who knows. I mean, that's the that's the idea of a black swan. No one knows what it is or when it's coming. But generally speaking, I think that the fundamentals are still the fundamentals
0: what do you think the biggest challenges are coming in the next decade especially for young investors
1: well the access to different investments makes it easy to start gambling and it's the same at the blackjack tables we were we might sit at a table of six people the the, the two of us are the only ones investing everyone else is gambling so you can you can Take the same actions as someone else is is taking. You can invest and in, buy something that someone else is buying, but really you're gambling and they're investing. So I think perhaps the access to all these different investments. I mean, now you can you can buy uh, pre-IPO shares on Robinhood. You can invest in crypto on Robinhood. You can and again they're trailblazing. Uh, they're they're a trailblazer. So I think other brokerage firms are going to allow similar things. A crypto. Oh my gosh. I mean, you you could buy crypto like that. So. Perhaps it's the access.
0: That is an amazing, interesting thing you said. You were sitting at the blackjack table and other people were gambling and yet you were investing. I would have never thought someone would say that about being in a casino. And yet it totally makes sense when you see the parallel with Wall Street. Like it, a lot of it has to do with really knowledge and strategic planning.
1: Yeah, 100%. If you have an understanding of the money that you're working with, whether it's your bankroll or your investment portfolio, you have an understanding of the potential risks involved in the investment that you're making, you've done your due diligence, you've you've gone through all the financial statements, you have an understanding of how the business operates, you know, what, what their balance sheet looks like, what their cash flow looks like. When you buy and or invest in a company, it is completely different than you know, Joe Schmo that walks in hears that it's a good stock and buys some shares. Completely different. And and in the casino, uh, one of the most frustrating things we ever had to do was bite our tongue because everyone wants to tell you how to play, and you can't just outright say, "Hey, I'm counting cards. You're playing like horribly." And this is actually <laughs> the right way to play. But yeah, it's completely different. There is one correct move for every possible play, one correct amount to bet for every possible you know hand, uh, every possible count, and we were absolutely playing for the long run. And and yeah, it it showed over time. Yeah. it, It reminds me that
0: blackjack is mathematical enough that, like you said, there can be one specific right move. The stock market, it's very, very hard to tell. There are probably many right moves and many wrong moves, not necessarily always as clear I'm interested in your experiences as a gig economy worker that seems to be where a workplace is going there are many people like you who want freedom so decide instead of being an employee to turn to the gig economy
1: do you think the nature of work has changed especially since the pandemic yeah absolutely and and as you say that it makes me think yeah that's definitely something that's changed since covid uh, and people are talking about this concept of a a great uh, resignation, you know, people just recognizing that there's no reason for a lot of us to be in an office. Retail is different. You've got to be there or or do you? I, I don't know. But uh, certainly there's a lot more of a, almost of a, of a realization of an identity that we can have more say in, in the type of work that we do. And more and more, like I said, TaskRabbit is, is an app that is making its way. I mean, this is just odd jobs. If you're an, if you're an electrician or, or you are, you know, just good with your hands in some way, or, I mean, I fixed Wi-Fi routers, you know, I just, you could do almost anything and you can connect directly with the person that wants to help. I think that more and more for sure, there's this emergence of, even if you're not doing that full time, just having something on the side gig, something, some sort of gig job on the side. Do you think there's a danger in glorifying some of these? I mean, you mentioned Uber and Lyft.
0: It's really hard to get ahead if that's your main gig.
1: Yeah, and unless you've got a new car and you can get some of those bonuses, I don't know how things have changed now, but after you actually go through the numbers and run the deduct the, the mileage and all that, which is is not just a number that you submit on your taxes like it, the government is saying, you know, there is you're taking your car is taking some sort of wear and tear, you know, and when you account for all of that, there's really not, again, unless you're 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 doing it a whole lot and you're hitting the prime spots and, and you've got a newer car to get these bonuses. There's it's not that great. It's really not. So do I think that it's being glorified? Um, maybe individually, I think as an idea though, it's it's not. I think as an idea, just having more control over the type of work that you're doing and when you're doing it is is great. I love that that's coming out of all of these different gig jobs.
0: Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you for coming on. Your story is fascinating. One is because at the beginning of the show, I read lyrics from Kenny Rogers, the gambler. And in many ways, I thought we were going to have a discussion of how you evolved from being a gambler to an investor. But after talking further, I realized that you even started as an investor. Even when you were sitting at the blackjack table, you were using scientific knowledge. You were using math to improve your odds. Yet you did evolve in the the sense that you realized that that wasn't a very easy way to make a living and eventually pivoted and changed your life away from blackjack and even away from the gig economy to become a financial coach as you found that you could put systems and strategy into place and have more freedom in the end than you thought you were getting when you were sitting at the blackjack table. It's a fascinating story. Tell us more about if people want to get in touch with you, how can they reach you online and what is up next in your life?
1: Sure. Yeah. If you want to reach me, you can go to my website, Uh There's no H on the end of that, Hannah. And uh, you can book a call with me. You can reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, same, Chris Allen Hanna is the is the name. And uh, what I've got going on in life. Well, this weekend, I'm going on my first backpacking trip. Uh, 20-mile backpacking trip through somewhere in Pennsylvania. I'm not actually quite sure. Uh, And yeah, I'm just continuing to... I mean, I love doing what I do, which is something that I'm really lucky to be able to say. And it's taken a decent amount of work to to get here. But yeah, I I love helping other people do more of what they love. So um, I certainly love this financial coaching. And yeah, in my free time, I'm trying to get outside a little bit more.
0: This has been the earn and invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Chris Hanna. That's
1: a wrap. Cool. So what did you think? Uh, great yes yeah, this, this is fun thanks so much i appreciate it jordan
0: yeah i had a good time i you know <clears throat> i i think your story is really interesting and again i think it went a little bit different than i thought it would in a very good way um mm-hmm. because i think your your perspectives on kind of your early career choices are interesting um oh how so well again i think people look at something like oh he was a professional blackjack player how 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 cool and exciting and glorious is that? Mm. But I think in the end, what you found was that it was a stretch. Like that freedom you were searching for Mm -hmm. actually closed you in a box, a box that didn't feel so good. And I would say the same about the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You're like, oh, I can have maximal freedom by doing and being part of the gig economy. And that's going to give me, quote unquote, freedom. And probably what you found, it was a heck of a difficult way to make a living. Yeah and so ultimately freedom came for you by starting back where you started maybe not as part of wall street working for someone else but in a sense you had to codify your life you had to build Mm. entrepreneurship and build an actual business that might not have felt so free to the guy coming out of college but probably felt a heck of a lot better the older you after you experience some of these things.
1: Yeah, that's a a really interesting perspective. I I completely agree. I think that uh, a lot of us that pursue our interests, I I think we might might be similar in saying that we don't regret those choices, although we could have because it got us to where we are. But at the same time, yeah, I could have made some different choices. I mean, knowing what I know now, I certainly could have made some different choices, even if I pursued um that job for even just a year i could have had enough money to then start taking a bit of a break learning what i'm learning now and starting my own business which means i maybe i could have gotten to where i was in a year versus in 5 or 6 years so yeah 100% yeah a lot of times we don't
0: really <clears throat> know what we want until we experience what we don't want yeah and and that's what's so hard That's what's so hard about making that leap out of college, which I see because I've seen other people do the exact opposite. I've seen Mm. people who've jumped into the corporate job and six months in, they're like, I got to get out of this place as soon as possible and start Mm -hmm. some kind of side gig or side hustle. And they find happiness doing that. So the pivot can go both ways. Right. Um, I guess the question is how not to get stuck for prolonged periods of time in that place you don't like. Right. So You probably figured out fairly quickly that eventually these things weren't working for you and moved to the next thing. If you had spent, you know, ten years as a professional gambler and 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 barely made a living and were worried about paying your rent from month to month, that would have been pretty painful.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's even the way that you say it, like just recognizing what works and what doesn't fairly quickly. That's one of the things that I attribute to where I, you know, my success now. uh, It's one of the biggest things that I attribute to my success now, and just being aware of what's going on and, and getting that feedback and, and listening to that feedback, like how much struggle does it really take? I I think I, like many others sort of, um, idolized that hustle culture and and you got to grind to get there. And Mm. in many ways, I'm doing the opposite of what I was doing now. How can I have more peace in my life? How can with the peace and the space that I have now be more strategic about how I'm spending my time to do the things that I love? Yeah. Uh, uh, is there anything you felt like we
0: didn't get a chance to talk about that you really wanted to be part of the podcast?
1: No, no, I think it was great. I think you do an amazing job. Yeah. And (laughs) thanks. I I really love interviewing people. I I just getting to why people do what they do. is fascinates me. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. A whole lot of fun. It was great. It was great meeting you, Jordan. I had a lot of fun.
0: we